23, we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 13. Verses 13 through 36, Jesus unleashed. And I mean, he goes on a, what some would call a tirade. <laughs> and I want you to kind of look at this as we read through these verses to think this is God. This is Almighty God in the flesh. In reality, it is only God who could announce such woe and condemnation upon this leadership. You and I, mere human beings, cannot level the kind of judgment that Jesus is measuring out against these people. Why? Because we lack what he has. And that's all knowledge. You and I cannot be judges because we don't have all the facts. We don't have all the knowledge. But God does. And God was revealing the inner person of these men who were ensconced in their leadership and in their evil habits. And Jesus is exposing them. And actually, as I'll say later on probably, this was in reality the final straw for these men. The establishment had been exposed and embarrassed publicly by Jesus through these words. And that was all they could bear. They were going to kill him. And it might be that God is provoking them to fulfill his purpose in bringing Jesus to the cross. That was God's ordained purpose, that he would die on the cross. But it doesn't relieve these men, nor you and I, of our human responsibility and, and, and the choices that we make and that we're responsible to God for those choices. And so this is probably one of the more difficult passages to preach from because save for the grace of God, we'd all be hypocrites. And so this is an appointed message towards anyone. Uh, if, you know, if there are areas in your life that, that need attention, well, please give it the attention that uh, needed. But uh, these are the kind of scriptures that you must look at yourself and examine yourself as you're ministering uh, this word. And so you, question is, why would Jesus pronounce these woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, because they were hypocrites. And the damage, actually, they were doing to God's kingdom. And it had reached a point of no return. And God had, as we'll see here, God had done in that, actually, everything that he could possibly do to bring these people to repentance. It starts out, as you remember, in Luke's gospel when they were first interrogating Jesus and watching over his ministries to begin to gain popularity. They would send their men you know, to Galilee there in Capernaum where his headquarters were as he was ministering there in the synagogue. They were watching him, you know, trying to get a, a read on you know, where was he going to go. Who is this guy? You know, all those things. And the Bible clearly says that the Spirit of the Lord was present to heal them. You see, the, the, no one needed more healing and more of a touch from God than the establishment and the leadership that was leading the nation of Israel. And for three and a half years, God extended grace and mercy to these men that they might see the error of their way and repent and become the leaders that God had ordained them to be. And yet, as we see, the majority of them refused the grace of God and they begin to turn others away. And so this is sort of... Set, setting it up. And so Jesus obviously is quite justified in pronouncing these woes, seven or eight, depending on how you want to count them. And, you know, um, 
They're just heavy-duty words to be on the receiving end, no doubt. The word hypocrite obviously comes from the Greek, uh, and it refers to the actor's mask. Now, in most of you are familiar with this, and so I'm not really telling you anything you don't know or haven't heard before. But in the Greek theater, there were two types of play. They had the, you know, the comedy and the tragedy. And depending on what kind of play that it was, comedy or tragedy, would depend upon which mask they would wear. If it was a comedy, then they would wear the big smiley face, you know. And, of course, if it was a tragedy, then they would be, you know, the, the, the frowny face would go on. And so it represented uh, the actor and the characters that they were playing, uh, but it wasn't the real person. And so that's where uh, the word comes from. It's, it's an actor. Uh, we have plenty of those in our society today. They're not all in Hollywood either. Um, of course, we sort of interpret that in the church or in business or any other form of leadership is someone preaching one thing and not doing it or or not practicing what they preach. And so the idea is conveyed that, you know, there's insincerity there, uh, inconsistency, either ignorantly or knowingly, uh, usually a combination of both, actually, when it comes down to it, because you become, when you begin to walk in known sin and to be, present yourself as something you're not, then blindness sets in, as we'll see as we make our way through this passage. So, it, it, But biblically speaking, when the woes are pronounced uh, throughout the Bible, um, it, it, and the word itself is sort of conveys like a, a funeral uh, lament. There's a, uh, just a, a sadness uh, that's a pain and discomfort that's communicated woe you know um, Isaiah has has a personal woe upon himself when he comes into the presence of God woe is me I'm undone I'm literally taken apart in the presence of Yahweh you know and just I'm you know it's a threat to my existence type of thing that was going on in his heart and this word <laughs> You've probably heard this from people from down under. It's in, in the Hebrew, it's oi, oi. <laughs> you know, that's really the, the word in the Hebrew. And it's used uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's used uh, not oi, but um, it, it, in the New Testament, it's Greek. And it's uh, used 37 times, uh, 14 times here in Matthew. And fifteen times in Luke, and so normally when it's used, it's it's indicating that it's going towards a person or people. Uh, so, uh, not something you want to hear. It's it's oa in in the Greek, and um, this mournful sound, uh, you know, that's coming forth, uh, you know, this this indicating death and lament and pain and sorrow, and Jesus is bringing this forth, even as the Old Testament prophets would bring forth these announcements and judgment upon Israel. Now we have to remember, uh, in essence, Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And you'll remember, as we did go through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is one of Jesus' favorite phrases, actually, you've heard it said, and so the, the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees were constantly saying certain things from the law to instruct the people. And a lot of what they taught was, was, was 
orthodox. It was accurate. It was good. Um, but it was the traditions of men and the burdens that they would lay upon men that were superseding what was written in the law that got them into trouble and the people burdened with religion, as it were. Uh, so a good example uh, is found in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 5, because I, I think this is uh, uh, pertinent to uh, what we're doing here is sort of, uh, it would not, in other words, what Jesus was about to do would not come as a surprise to these people. It was in their history. Isaiah uh, chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1 of Isaiah. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard, on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out the stones, and he planted the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and also made a wine press in it, and he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard? And that is a parallel, I believe, what we need to see in the heart of God, in the heart of Christ as he's ministering this last indictment against the establishment. Skip with me on down to verse 14. Isaiah 5.14. Now, see if this doesn't re relate to some things that are going on in our society as well. And it does relate because it's human nature playing its selfish way out in community, as it were. But Isaiah 5.14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude is, and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And the God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed with their, in their pasture. And in the waste places the fat ones strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. And sin as if it were a cart rope. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work. That we may see it. And let the Holy One of Israel draw near and come. That we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to the men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to the men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man therefore as fire devours the stubble and flame consumes the chaff so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom shall ascend like dust because they have rejected the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel do not think any of us can prosper in any way when we deny God, when we deny His Word, 
and seek to go against it. And yet that's what we see in our culture. We see a platform of a certain of the political parties, unfortunately, that have removed God from their platform. They have embraced a platform of death. And these are the things that will bring forth the judgment of God. And we who are in the church and who love God and love His Word should be praying that this should happen, that this should become a reality. As many of you are on the midweek study, as we're studying through David and his passion that he comes forth with when he's praying for the ungodly, those who persecute and those who hate God. And he prays that God would judge them. And this is important because sin unchecked in this manner will bring death to a culture. And, and do not think sin unchecked within our culture will not affect you, will not affect me. It will over a long period of time. So even if we're praying selfish prayers, as it were, for self-preservation, we should be praying that God would rectify what's going on in our culture. We need a great awakening. We need a turning to God Amen. like never before. You know, well, we've got somebody in there that's heading us the right direction so we can kind of kick back and just rest in it. I say no. I say no to that. I'm glad we have someone taking us the right direction. But I'd like to think that the church could turn and repent and head the right direction. That's where the victory is. We will not be saved by the laws of the land. We will not be saved by some politician or some non-politician for that matter, will be saved by the grace of God and because there's a great awakening and a move of God's Spirit upon the hearts and lives of His people. God, send that revival. We desperately need it. So, again, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You've heard it said. And so Jesus would pick up on what was being taught by these men and take it to the real intent. Jesus interpreted the law of Moses at the heart level, not just the intellectual mind level, as it were. It wasn't the letter of the law that was as critical as the spirit of the law, and this is what Jesus was teaching there on the Sermon of the Mount. He captured that deeper intent and thought of the scripture. You know, for example, uh, the law said you shall not commit adultery, and Jesus took that teaching of the scribes right to the heart level, which is what was, it was meant for. It wasn't just that avoiding the act that was important, but it was the attitude of the heart that mattered most to the Lord. Because we know the Lord does not look upon the outward appearance. We know that God looks upon our hearts. And these are the important things to understand and know as a believer. And so the law wasn't just reaching the behavioral level, but the attitude and in tent of the heart and it would reveal the fallen heart and it would help that person recognize that they needed grace that they needed help yes even in the old testament grace would be available to the person who would cry out to it god's spirit is everywhere and he was at work he may not have had an indwelling presence like he does in the believer today but he was there he was with the people who love god and he would reveal himself to them through his spirit the spirit of god was always at work And so, in the case here of lusting after women, uh, 
if you look at a woman and desire her, then Jesus was saying you've committed adultery already in your heart. No, you haven't done the act, but you, you have already. So it's just something that guys have a problem with, if we're honest with ourselves. We don't want just our wives. We want every beautiful woman that we could possibly see. And this is what the law is saying. And you recognize that. You have to harness that natural desire and deny it. And understand that those desires are confined to the marriage bed, which is undefiled. And, you know, this is, this is why marriage, and, and it's under attack today, and it just is such a grieving thing. And it's really, I mean, I think these people are idiots, actually. They're educated idiots. They, they can write profound things, but they don't say anything. It's, and so they're really not profound at all, but they come off as they're profound. I mean, to do a weighing with, with marriage between a man and a, a woman. I mean, that, what's wrong with you people? You know, that's the common sense point of view, but I guess common sense isn't so common anymore. That's a problem. Why is marriage so important? It's one of the foundation pillars of human existence. If we destroy that, we destroy our own selves, as it were. And the other thing is, it is it's sacred. Marriage is a sacred uh, institution given to us by God. It is the expression of God's love. There are four words that are used in the Bible, in the New Testament, for love. There's the agape, there's phileo, there's starge, and there's eros. On all four of those loves are found in the marriage relationship. Uh, obviously, agape, the uh, unconditional love that God has towards you and I, it's unconditional and unending. The phileo, the more on the mind level and and brotherly love, Philadelphia, you know, phileo, and you like the things that I like and all. And then stargate, which is a parental love. It's doing what's best for the individual type of thing, and it's an oversight type of love. And then, of course, eros, the physical love on the physical level. God has love for us on all levels, and it's shown to man in the marriage relationship. And the marriage relationship is also an indication of the believer's relationship to God. We are his bride. We are his wife. We are to be spiritually committed to him and to him only. In our culture, when we destroy this place of, of uh, marriage and we confusion results in, in relationships, we're actually threatening our continuing ex existence. And so um, we're vital, violating the law of God. Now, what's happening here as we get ready to read it is... Um, as I said before, after after this sermon, because it's, as we read the last week, he's ministering to the disciples and to the multitudes. He is in the temple. And then he turns from ministering to the disciples, <laughs> to those who love him and are there. And then he begins to minister directly to these scribes. If you can kind of put yourself in, this, in the temple there. And this is uh, where we want to pick it up there in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes 
and Pharisees and hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that it's on it, well, he's obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things that are on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so also, outwardly you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. I would not have wanted to have been on the receiving end of that message. That is heavy stuff. It had to be read. But let's just walk through here, because last week we looked at the importance of recognizing authority. Here we see the abuse of authority. And this is no different than what's going on today. This is, this is human nature, out of control, and 
unsubmitted to the Spirit of God trying to leave, lead people of God. And this is sad. And so we're going to look, walk through these, not in great detail, one woe after the other. The first woe, obviously, is that they were themselves blinded to the fact that they were not part of God's kingdom. They were not going to enter. They thought they were saved. They considered themselves God's representatives. And they were, but in name only. As we'll see, they actually didn't have a personal relationship with Yahweh at all. And because they themselves were failing to enter, they would, were blocking the way for others to enter the kingdom of God. This is one of the greatest sins. And this is one of the things I hear as I witness to people. I don't go to church anymore because, well, they're just full of a bunch of hypocrites and the pastors are just money hungry and they're totalitarian in their, in their leadership. They just, they're hard-nosed and they're harsh and mean and they, you know, all these kinds of things. And, and I can't deny that that goes on and it, it's present in the church. Sadly so. I mean, I've heard some people have gone to church and sort of put up with it all their life. In fact, I've had people come up to me, you know, Pastor, you really need to step on our toes a little more often. You know, I'm like, I give them kind of the side eye look like, well, I really don't think that's my job. My job is to minister the word and the spirit of God is the one that does the convicting. I can't change anybody. I can't change myself. I need to be transformed by his spirit. And I, you know, it's kind of like we've, we know we've been bad all week, so to speak. And so I'm going to go to church and take my licks, you know. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a bad way of looking at church. But I, that's why a lot of people don't go because I'm just going to get, I'm going to walk out feeling worse than when I came in. And that's just not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and so we see this abuse uh, of authority in the church, and, uh, and it stumbles people, sadly. I hate to see that happen. You know, men may be like this, and the church may have this reputation, but I want to say to anybody that's listening by way of the Internet or whatever, look, Jesus is not that way. God is not that way. He's a God of love and compassion. Jesus demonstrated and illustrated the heart of the Father. Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, he is the express image of God. You really want to know the heart and mind of God? To the degree that we can understand it, it was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at Christ. Don't look at the church. And surely don't look at church history. It's ugly. You're looking at fallen men trying to be something and do something for God. And this has always been a, a problem. When we put ourselves in place of what God should be doing. And so it always ends up as a, in a disaster. And so these guys, were, at that point in time, were turning people away from Jesus. He's demon-possessed. He's, bla- he's a blasphemer. He's, as a man, is making himself to be God. And so the, he, they were, you know, the people were coming to church, so to speak, and they wanted to worship God. They wanted to be part of God's kingdom. 
and they're coming and then they're conflicted. They see this incredible love and this incredible ministry of people being healed and touched and blessed by the words and the teaching of Christ, his healing ministry and the miracles and raising the dead. I mean, what more could the guy do? I mean, sort of like Isaiah, what more could God do to demonstrate his love and goodness? And then you've got these guys on the other side who are supposed to be the gatekeepers who are saying he's a demon-possessed man doing this. Now, I talk about being conflicted. I mean, oh, my lands. It was, that was their place. And Jesus hated this. And he was angry with the leadership over their sin because they were putting stumbling blocks in the way of his people. Now, let's look more closely at number two here, uh, which would be under their character and their actions. They devoured widows' houses and then for pretense they made prayers. It was, all their prayers were pretentious. It wasn't really coming from their heart. It was some prayer that sounded good. And so these two, uh, first two woes, really, they just did not grasp God's world or God's intention at all. And this was a common thing in their history. As we read there in Isaiah, they were, uh, as it were, uh, talking about that in Isaiah 5 there they were these priests were acquiring property and, uh, and then in the end they were acquiring, acquiring money and so now how did God see the land how did God view this well the land belonged to him and he allowed his people to dwell in it as aliens and strangers Abraham illustrated that because he just lived in a tent this isn't my home. I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that's where our home is. And that's a city we should be looking for. Amen? Uh, the one that's eternal. And so yet these guys were, were taking advantage of the widows and taking from them what uh, really did not belong to them at all. God's intention was that it was to stay within the family all throughout their history. That was part of the law and all. And so anyway, they were devouring these widows' houses, acquiring properties, and making these long-pressed and, uh, prayers to impress the people. Like, oh, how spiritual, you know. I am. Oh, it was just, you know, again, just <laughs> sickening, really. And then number three, you know, that was the second woe. The third woe uh, and the fourth one actually kind of go together, too. They're, they... <laughs> We're misjudging God's priorities in, in regards to his word. Uh, they, as we would say in our modern day, they were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. <laughs> and, that, and that's always a problem. You know, it's always good to keep the first things first uh, when it comes to God's word. And so they, were, they had all these external restrictions in, these, in their rabbinical traditions and they were laying these traditions of men on the people and making it a yoke that, that no one could bear. Um, but it, by doing so, it put them in control. And that's exactly what they were after. And so they made disciples, verse 15, after themselves. And in doing so, uh, you know, if you're a disciple, you always seem to want to at least be as good as your teacher or top them. And so these guys were really developing some evil followers. And I think, I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul here. What was he doing shortly after Pentecost when this whole revival broke out? Going from city to city as Jesus predicted they would. And murdering. Of course, Paul 
repented, praise the Lord. Give us half the New Testament. God used what the devil meant for evil. God turned and used for good. He was twice as much a son of hell as the leadership going out and murdering Christians. But God turned him around. It's amazing grace. He never thought, he never got over it, really. Paul couldn't get over the fact that that was his crime. And maybe that's kind of where you are this morning. Maybe you, you've sinned deeply. And maybe you've played the hypocrite in your own life a time or two. I think we're all guilty of this at some point in time. Trying to, to put something forth that's really not on the inside to present ourselves as better than we really are because we're ashamed or whatever. Well, just know that there's grace. There's forgiveness. That's, as we gather to, you know, this morning at the end of the service here at the table of the Lord and we take communion, just reflect on that. That, that, no, that, that no matter what sin, what failure you have had in your life, it's a new day. God's mercies are new every morning. Why? Because he knows we need it. <laughs> I mean, frankly, we need mercy every day of our lives. And so um, let's continue here. Number four, they were swearing oaths by the temple, swearing by uh, the altar, uh, the gift and the gold and all that. And, and, and what it really was, you know, he called them fools. People who were lacking real discernment. They didn't understand the value of things nor the implication of what they were doing. They had these, uh, you know, first of all, Jesus taught that we were not supposed to make oaths for the reason that we're flesh. But these guys had worked out a system where they could access what was put on the altar and what was dedicated to God and sort of had a nice little way of sort of circumventing God out of the whole picture. And, you know, a Corbin, it's a gift. So, you know, uh, God didn't really actually get it and it wasn't really it was dedicated to their property you know they just their ability to evaluate was totally skewed um, Greg uh, Blumberg writes this he says the Jews apparently reasoned that a lien could be put on a temple or the altar and then or could not be put upon the temple or the altar then the oath invoking those objects were meaningless and Jesus maintains that gold or the temple, the altar, the gift, all point to God and remain equally sacred so that the oaths taken in their name remain equally binding. In the two examples here in 16 through 21, it seems to be making the additional point that the Jews thought what the Jews thought was lesser item was actually the greater. And so just an inability to have discernment and to have a Correct value judgments uh, blinded them. Number five, in verse 23, they paid tithe, but yet they showed new, no mercy to others. This, these last uh, woes that are pronounced there is that these people were <clears throat> misjudging God's people. They were misjudging themselves. They didn't see themselves as God saw them. And as others saw them, they uh, were diligent in the lesser things of the law, but yet they neglected the more important things of the law. And again, they just again, lacked understanding of, and l really just lost sight of how important relationships are. And this is one of the things that we're facing in our day to day. We have 
an increasingly information culture. And I think the overload of information is driving a, a number of people insane. I don't know that we're, we need to know as much as we know. But we have this human trait that's in all of us is that we want to know and we want to understand. And so we're driven in this information age to learn and to discover. And that's not all bad, but I don't know that we can handle it all. It's, it's just information overload. And, and when we uh, are in that mode, we become desensitized to the feelings and needs of other people. We big again treat people like they're information or like they're, they're inanimate objects without feelings. And so we just lose, as it were, uh, the value of relationship. It's a problem in our culture. I mean, how do you like to be talking to someone and all of a sudden they whip out their phone because they're getting a phone call? Like, that phone call is more important than you. I mean, you actually took the time to meet with this person, and now they're being interrupted by someone who, you know, blatantly probably trying to, you know, get them to buy something, you know, <laughs> some solicitor, you know. And uh, so we've got a real problem of being addicted to our phones and addicted to information. And so um, it's an easy trap to fall into. And God help us to get back to what's really matters in life, and that is loving each other and having uh, respect for one another uh, in our relationships. All of us are created in the image of God, and we're all accountable uh, for the choices that we make, and God uh, gives us that prerogative to make choices, and and so we need to let people be who they are. But uh, here, they lack that. And actually, that's to me, this is what leadership is all about. We're, we're to uh, represent God to the people. Not only God in name, to, you know, as that we're to bring forth God's word. This is what God says about it. We're representing God to the people. But not only representing God in name, but representing him in nature. Jesus did it perfectly. He imaged the Father perfectly. This is what God is after in your life. This is what he's after in my life. That we learn to image God perfectly in name and in nature this is what it's about and then again we're reminded of this whole underlying thought from Micah 6 8 who just in these guys I love these the, the minor prophets not that they were minor but that's what we call them uh, major major truth here from Micah 6 8 he has shown you O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you so this is, this, if you get nothing else from this this morning, you get this. And you take this home with you. And you live by this. And you'll be a blessed person. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, it's kind of akin to, to what Jesus, how he summed up, as it were, the Old Testament. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. Well, this is, this is one on for relationships. To love mercy. To do justly. And to walk humbly with your God. Woe number six. That would be verses 25 through 28. They cleanse the outside. They were more concerned about outward demonstration than the inward reality and the attitude that was within them. And this is a problem. They lack the ability to discern these things. 
You know, you, you, they were so particular about making sure all the utensils that were used in, you know, the sacrifices were clean and because they were all sanctified. They were holy unto the Lord. And they made sure that they were clean and all. And yet they didn't see that they were actually vessels of the Lord as well, just like you and I. Vessels that needed to be washed and cleansed regularly so that they could be sanctified, as it were, for the Master's use. And any time that we don't think we're in need of repentance or we don't need forgiveness or, or that we, we're okay, all you have to do is just read the Bible just for a short period of time and you'll get arrested with that attitude. We are poor in spirit. We are a needy people. And the closer we get to God, the more accurately we are able to see ourselves. And then when most of us have gone through that, we've crossed that threshold, and it's hard for us to lift our face be, because we're ashamed of what we've done and what we've thought and what we've, uh, how we've conducted ourselves at times. We just, God help us. And that's that poor in spirit in approach to God. God will raise a person up. But to go in as the Pharisee, I'm, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. And that guy over there, especially that guy. And, you know, you begin to justify yourself. And then the other guy that really got justified in his prayers, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And see, these are the things that we have to learn. They do not come naturally to us, but we are taught by the Spirit. We are instructed by the Word of God. And we get ourselves. And understanding that it's the heart, it is my heart that God is working on. God, we put so much emphasis on the outward, but God, the word puts it upon the inward, the attitude, because the, it is out of the attitude of my heart, it's what issues forth from my life. I have to guard that, I have to keep that. And these men were miserably failing at this. May we not fail at all at this. They condemned the righteous because they were self-righteous. They were judging people. They judged Jesus according to their own standard and not God's standard. And that's really another way of getting into big trouble. They were hostile here, as it says, towards the righteous. Blind to their own shortcomings, their own faults. And anybody that crossed them, they persecuted they rejected. You wonder why you are rejected for your being a Christian, for being joyful and happy and right in a lot of your assessments. You know why you're picked on and persecuted by those outside the faith? It's because it's not necessarily because of you, but it's who you represent. It's because what you they're falling short of what is a reality in your own life. The reality that has been given to you as a gift of grace and allowed you to walk in truth. It's, we have to see that we are only believers because of God's wonderful grace and His extended mercy. You know, God didn't choose the Israelites because they were smart, because they were more beautiful, or they were an awesome number of them. Quite the opposite, actually. He said, you're stiff-necked. You guys are stubborn little guys. You know. He chose them because he wanted to. And God chose you. 
because he wanted to. And he wants to reveal himself more and more to each one of us. And so this is a, a tough place to be, the tough message to hear. Who wants to get raked over the coals, realizing that, you know, except for the grace of God, we could end up in this ditch really easily. And, and then there are those of you who are, are just struggling to understand God. You're struggling to understand where you're at and why you are in this place right now, a place that you do not prefer. And I want to have a word for you this morning. And I wrote this down this morning as I was thinking about this moment. And this is what I wrote. It's about resting and it's about peace. Resting in the Lord is not found in understanding what God is doing. Rather, our rest in Jesus is the result of our trust and our faith in God's ability to complete the work that he started in us. Our faith and trust in God who understands all things and brings a rest and a peace to our soul. We don't have to understand everything to be at peace with God. It will be our faith. It will be our trust that brings us the rest and the peace. We can rest in that. And we can have peace because we are serving a God who does understand everything. So don't expect your life to make sense every step of the way. You don't have enough information. God couldn't possibly disseminate enough information to make you feel good about it either. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this, just like everybody else. I wish I was over here instead of here, Lord. Why do I have to go through this? Why couldn't you get somebody else to do this, you know? And I, you know, I want to, you know, bemoan my situation at times. But it's not for me to necessarily understand. I can still rest in what the Lord's doing because of his promises. Here's the one you need to take with you this morning. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You have all the grace, you have all the mercy for all of eternity that you're ever going to need at your disposal right now. And God is going to finish what he started with you. He doesn't just do a project halfway and then abandon. You are his work of art. And he's molding and shaping each one of us into that beautiful piece of work that will glorify him. And so as you take communion this morning, I want you to reflect upon that. I want you to do some heart examination as we're going to have a scripture read to us here. And then uh, the fellows are going to pass out the elements. If you're a believer, please take uh, the elements with us. If you're not a believer, you have not received Jesus, then, well, first of all, I want you to receive Jesus. Just ask him... uh, to come into your life and to forgive your sins. Now, some people think, well, you ought to have an altar call to do that. I kind of give them the side eye look when they bring that up because in this, you're going to have an altar call here? You are in the altar. (laughs) This whole room's the altar, man. (laughs) But coming to Christ, it's little people do it. Little children do it. It's just as simple as saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I know it. You know it. Please forgive me. 
Come into my life. Change me. I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to be with you. Give me your spirit. That's all it takes. It's instantaneous. You don't have to work for it. It's a gift. Righteousness is the gift of God to you. And then if you do that, go ahead and take communion. And you take the communion individually. You can, Fellows, you can lead your family in prayer over the communion that you're served, however you desire to do it. But you take the cup when you feel you want to take the cup and take the bread when you want to take the cup. It's a private moment. And the worship team's going to come now and they're going to uh, lead us in this last song. The guys are going to pass this out. And then we ha- I want you to hear the scriptures that Paul uh, recited to the Corinthians in regards to communion. If you'll stand and read that scripture for us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 32. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, You are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world.